They got your Bibles opening to the book of Revelation chapter 3 this morning as we continue in our series taking us through the book of Revelation. I hope you're beginning to see as we're going through Revelation, it may not have been what you expected, um, meaning that we all come to Revelation with our questions and curiosities and different perspectives, but really what we're doing is we are looking unto Christ in the book of, we're studying Christ in the book of Revelation. And I really think that's what John's intent is. I think that's the intent of the entirety of the Bible, to uphold the glory, the greatness, the excellencies of Christ. And so it's no different when we come to the book of Revelation. We want to see Christ. And so this morning, we're, we've made our way now into the, the seven churches. We're into chapter three this morning, which is Christ's church, uh, Christ's letter to the church at Sardis. So let's look together at our text this morning, Revelation chapter three. I'll begin reading in verse one. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I've not been through this experience myself, but I could only imagine that one of the most shocking, horrific, terrifying, devastating things that one could go through would be having to gone through a battery of tests with a doctor to then go and you get the results and to have that doctor take you by the hand, look you dead in the eye and say, it's cancer. And immediately I would imagine your mind begins wondering, oh my goodness, well, I'm going to fight it, I'm going to fight it, only to hear these words. It's terminal. It's aggressive. It can't be cured. There's nothing we can do. In essence, now I don't know that a doctor would use this language, but I would think this has to be the feeling that engulfs you are, in essence, a dead man walking. A dead woman walking. And I was kind of looking through some different stories this week, and, and some of you may know better than I, so if I'm speaking out of turn, but it seemed like there were instances where among some who received news of terminal cancer, it came as such a shock because outwardly you would look at this individual, they didn't feel awful, they didn't look awful, they felt healthy, they felt vibrant, they felt alive, maybe just in passing they felt some kind of a a bulge or a lump that they had never noticed before, and maybe I should go get it checked out. Externally, everything seemed fine. Inwardly, though, the x-ray reveals there's something terrible. There's a tumor 
and it's been there for a while, and it's spread, and it's spread to some awful places. It's spread into the, the stomach. It's spread into the lungs. It's spread wherever it spreads, and ultimately, you're a dead man walking. It's just a matter of time. Well, this letter to this church at Sardis is Jesus' x-ray of that church in Sardis. Now, all of the letters to all of the churches are Christ's x-ray of what's going on in the churches. But in Sardis, it is a particularly devastating diagnosis. We see it once again in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Here's the diagnosis. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you're dead. I think it's important for us to clearly see from the outset this morning as we go through this letter, this sobering reality that this opening salutation, these opening words, you have the name of being alive. You have the reputation of being vibrant and alive, but you are dead. That these words are addressed by Christ himself. These are not the words of a disgruntled, bitter pastor who's just letting his flock have it. These are not the words of a cynical, discouraged church member who's on his way out the door and he's just taking a cheap shot at the church. These are not the words of a jealous neighboring ministry who's trying to throw stones at the church at Stardust, really trying to stir the pot and, and tear down their reputation. Those things happen. These are by Christ's own words, the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And again, in all of these introductions to the letters, they are an allusion, a reference to John's vision of Christ from Revelation chapter 1. So when Jesus introduces himself in this way, he's already given John this vision of himself. And we've seen that he who holds the seven spirits, the seven spirits are a, a symbol of the, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is saying here is that Jesus knows the true condition of the church at Sardis. Everyone else looking at the externals, they see one thing. But Christ, through the presence of his Holy Spirit in his churches, he knows the reality. And the reference to holding the seven stars in the, in the hand, uh, he's the Lord of his church. He holds his church. And he holds the future of his church as well. And it's important to see this contrast. While the Christians in Sardis and, and neighboring communities, they may see the church in Sardis as a, in a certain light. What Jesus is saying at the outset, but I know the truth. I've seen the x-ray. I who have, again, John's vision in chapter 1, eyes of burning fire. I see into the heart. Man looks at the externals. I look at the internal. I've seen. I know the truth. And I must expose the reality of the situation. Christ here acknowledges the true state of the church. And he said to them, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Could you imagine any more stinging words than that? You're a ministry, a church that thinks, hey, man, we're doing everything right. Man, we've got it all. We've got, we, we've got all the activities. We've got all the participation. We've got the reputation. 
Everyone around us wants to be us. We are the model ministry. That's, that was kind of the mentality around Star, Sardis. But Jesus says, but you're dead. And I find it harrowing that though most of the churches here, of the seven churches, they receive a word of commendation. Even the church at Ephesus where Jesus says, I know your works, I know your deeds, but I got this against you. You've lost your first love. I mean, that's, that's heinous. You've lost your, first, your love for Christ. Yet there was a word of commendation for them. For the church at Pergamum and Thyatira who were involved in compromise with the world. They were in sin. They were called to repent. There was a word of commendation for them. But nothing for the church at Sardis. No word of commendation whatsoever from Jesus for the church in Sardis. That everyone thought was alive, was perfect, the model church. The church that had a favorable reputation, a positive outlook not only from its own members, but from the neighboring churches as well. Everybody thinks the church at Sardis is, man, it's alive, it's vibrant, it's alive. They're, they're a model church. They're so active. They're so busy. I could foresee that as these letters are being circulated and read and the book of Revelation is being read to the seven ch churches and it's been going about, I could foresee uh, people hearing the, uh, God, Christ's word to the church at Ephesus and, okay, the church at Smyrna, or the church at Thyatira. But hearing Christ's word to Sardis, you have a reputation, a name for being alive, but you are dead. I could imagine they would hear that and say, whoa, Sardis? It's dead? Sardis is, is the epitome. Sardis is, is the model. Sardis, man, Everyone wants to be the church at Sardis. They're, they're alive, they're vibrant, they're active. They got all this going on. They would have never believed in a hundred years that the reputation that Sardis had was paper thin and that they were actually dead. You see, one of the things we keep seeing over and over in Jesus' words to the church is that appearances are deceiving. Man looks at the outside. Man looks at the externals. Man looks at the activities. Man looks at the participation. And, and please, when I say that, don't hear me criticizing that. I'm not saying all activities are wrong or bad. Or, I'm not saying that. But I am saying if the inside is not devoted to love for Christ, a devotion to the King, then anything we do on the outside is dead. The point here in verse 1 is that our omniscient Christ, our omniscient King, He knows His church. And we've seen this week after week, nothing escapes His gaze. He sees through all the Christianized activity, the bells and whistles, the things that in modern day methodology seem to be the anointing of the church to do this program, that program. Jesus says, I'm looking through those things. I'm looking to the heart. And Jesus is saying, I see the deficiencies. I see the shortcomings. I see for the church at Sardis, there is no life there. You know, I, I remember thinking as a young minister that activity equaled life. 
And I can remember those earliest days in ministry. I felt obligated. I felt pressured in some sense. I got to keep the calendar full. I need to make sure each week in the bulletin, I mean, every line has something going on. I need something for men. I need something for women. I need something for children. I need this, that, and the other. Can't let any of those balls fall. And I will tell you this. For me, and I can only speak for me, the pace to keep activity up turned into some of the driest seasons for me spiritually. Some of the deadest seasons. And, and I can only speak for me, but upon the authority of God's word, what we see going on in Sars, I bet it was true for some of you as well. Not all of you necessarily. I discovered that in the midst of filling every day with church activity, man, my insides could be completely distant from my king, indifferent to him. And there is a danger of busyness without faithfulness to our king. There is a danger of, of, of being active, but having no sense of sincere seriousness about Jesus Christ. There is a, a reality of activities that do not cultivate any closeness with Christ. Of having prayer and music, preaching, attendance and participation, and yet no true worship take place whatsoever. A lot, lot going into preparing and, and, and preaching and praying, and yet we gather together. And because here, no worship takes place. On the external, it may look good. But on the inside, there's death. The reality is that despite this church's reputation for life and vitality and activity, Jesus exposes, but you are dead. And the worst thing here is the church at Sardis wouldn't have even known it. They had lost all sense of self-evaluation. How they evaluated an effective ministry and faithfulness to the, to the Lord was so out of whack. Now they had, they had lost any honest self-evaluation of their love for the Lord Jesus. They'd become indifferent to their true condition. So the church in Sardis, it's a devastating message, thinks it's alive, it's vibrant, it's live, it's pleasing to the Lord. But Christ exposes it's not. I'll be real honest. This has been a sobering letter to read not just because of the indictment it is to the church at Sardis, but because these seven letters are written not just to them, they're written to us. This is Christ's word to Covenant Life Church. Here in the 21st century, here in the Olive Branch community, this is his message for us to, to, to pray, God, give me ears to hear. Is this your indictment upon me? It should be a sobering message for all of us. The question I think I've wrestled with and I think we need to wrestle with this morning is how might a church know, how might a people know, both individually and corporately, how might a church know they are dead? What are the symptoms? And Jesus provides these symptoms here. There's at least three in our text I think we can pull from of what was going on, what he sees in the church at Sardis that says, oh, you're active, you're vibrant, you got all kinds of things going on. But there's death in the soul. And here's what's going on. The first symptom is spiritual anemia. Spiritual lethargy. They're lethargic spiritually. What does that mean? 
I think we might picture it this way. It's when the praises of God, we come on a Sunday morning, we gather to pray corporately in our prayer meeting time, we gather to sing, and we mouth some prayers perhaps, or we see the words come up on the screen. My apologies this morning, that was my fault on the Crown Him with Many Crowns song, uh, the lyrics, that's my fault. But we see the lyrics come up, and, and, and we, we mouth them. I mean, we're participating, we got sounds coming, but there's almost a sense of, I'm just... I'm weary, I'm tired, I'm here in body, but man, I just, I'm deflated. That's spiritual lethargy, being lethargic spiritually. It's also when the word of God is read, maybe individually or corporately when we come together and it's expounded and you sit there and you hear it and you maybe even agree with it. And maybe even out the door, you say something kind to me, like, that was a good message. I don't expect that, don't want that. But, I mean, maybe, maybe you go to those lengths, and yet it doesn't do anything to you. It goes in one ear and out the other. That's spiritually lethargic. You're weakened spiritually. And the things we do on a Sunday morning in our prayer meeting, in our worship, in the preaching hour, the things that we do, just, they don't make much difference, except that it's Sunday morning, you participated in some religious activity, you feel better about things, you've done your religious duty, but spiritually, it, it didn't do anything. And I think Covenant Life Church, I think we need to be aware, this is the most common spiritual sickness in the world, both for professing Christians and for true Christians that we can have the Word of God brought to us week after week after week, and we simply regard it as the Word of man. That we can open up the Word of God and say, Thus saith the Lord in this letter to the church at Sardis, and what we hear is, well, that's Jacob they're talking. That's Jake's perception. That's Jake's thoughts on this thing. I'm here, I pray that's not the case, but it can happen. But, and we don't hear it as the word of God, which Paul says is at work within you and among you. And the temptation is there's a glazing over in people's eyes. And as I look out, I can sometimes see that. And the truth be told, when these roles were reversed and I was out there, I had the same thing. So I'm not up here throwing stones. There's a glazed look that comes over people's eyes, calluses over our hearts, and we're aware that truth is flying, but it doesn't penetrate because there's spiritual lethargy. We're lethargic. We're not eager. We're not hungry for the word. And here, that's a sign of death. When you go to a doctor and they ask you, hey, you're, we're going through a battery of questions to determine things, and they ask you, how's your appetite? And if you say, you know, appetite's good, man, I've been eating plenty. I mean, that may be a problem, but it's not a sign that there's problem. If you say to him, I just don't have any appetite. I, for days I haven't eaten. I haven't wanted anything. My, my wife cooked something. I, the doctor's going to put that down. That's a problem. If there's not an appetite, then there's a problem. Spiritually, if there's a loss of appetite for Christ, for the word of God that reveals us to Christ, that points us to Christ, that is the means of grace for us looking unto Jesus. That is a sign 
of spiritual death, a sign of spiritual... We're so lethargic that we actually think, I've got enough. I've got enough of Christ. I can go on what I've heard from John Piper or R.C. Sproul or whoever you listen to. I don't need any more. On Sunday morning, this... The sloth in my heart says, what we do here doesn't matter much. And that's what was happening in Sardis. Oh, they were gathering, they were present, they were participating, but it wasn't making any difference. It didn't matter much. That's the first symptom. The second symptom is amnesia, spiritual amnesia. They were forgetting. And think about Jesus' parable. You remember the, the story he told about the seeds being sown, the word of God being preached. And among some of them, the, the birds come down to the air and they take the word of God away. It's there for a moment, but then it's gone. And that was what was happening in Sardis. They come together, they hear the word of God preached. But as soon as the dismissal comes, as soon as they hit the glass doors, down the steps, on their way to the vehicles, the birds come and just pluck it out. We go back to the same routine, back to the same way of thinking. We completely forget it. Some of you know, on Wednesday nights, there's a a group of us that are going through Isaac Ambrose's Looking Unto Jesus, that 17th century fantastic book. and, And as we're going through it, just this past Wednesday night, I engaged our group with this question. You know, we're devoted to looking unto Jesus. Here at Covenant Life Church, that's kind of how we understand the gospel. I don't want to oversimplify it, but I do think that's, that's a great way to frame. Here's what the gospel is. It's looking unto Jesus. In him is the all-glorious, all-sufficient, everything that we need for forgiveness of sins, life eternal, for joy, for hope, for healing. It's Christ alone. And, and the discussion I, I had with our group on Wednesday night was this. And I, I expressed my concern to them. That not just for our group, but for us as a church, looking to Jesus might be nothing more than a motto or a theme or, 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 or something, you know, a language we use. My question to them was, do we take it seriously and bring it to bear upon our daily lives, upon our circumstances, so that this week, whatever I'm going through, Looking unto Jesus is the answer. Christ is the answer. Bringing him to bear. Are we really bringing Jesus Christ in his person and his work to bear in every circumstance and knowing Jesus in our circumstance, considering Jesus in our circumstance, hoping in Jesus in our circumstance, applying Jesus in our circumstance, rejoicing in Jesus in our circumstance, conforming to Jesus in our circumstance? Because we conform to him by looking unto him as we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same likeness from one degree of glory to another. And I would simply ask you the same thing that I asked my group on Wednesday night. I make no apologies for this. It, It may be an oversimplification, but the application of every sermon we preach here is Jesus. Look to Jesus. Everything we need to do, even what the text commands us to do, we need Christ to do it. 
Look to Jesus. The answer to every question is Jesus. The grace for every circumstance is Jesus. My question to you is, as we think about the amnesia that was going on in the church at Sardis and how the word of God was just being forgotten, does the message of looking to Jesus in his all-sufficient excellency and glory, does it last once you leave here on a Sunday morning? Do you carry it with you into your Monday morning, into your Wednesday? And do you cling to Christ, hold on to Him as though an oxygen mask, your very oxygen, or as the very food to feed you? Do you cling to Christ in that way? Or does it only last for the duration of time we're in this building on a Sunday morning? And therein it's just a theme, just a motto. Spiritual amnesia was going on in the church at Sardis. Might it be going on in our souls as well? And the result of their spiritual weakness and their spiritual amnesia was compromise. And we've seen this in our previous churches as well. In fact, in verse 4, we see it's kind of the by way of flipping the coin. Verse 4, yet you still have a few names in Sardis people who have not soiled their garments. So among this church, everyone thinks they're alive, they're dead, but there's still a few who have not soiled their garments. Well, what does that mean? It means there are a few and only a few who are devoted to Jesus, who are still hotly pursuing after Jesus Christ as the enchanting, magnetic, fascinating, alluring, glorious, all-sufficient, excellent king and savior that he is. And for the rest, it was just a theme. In the broader context of revelations, it means that only a few whose witness to the world had not been compromised. They had not turned away from Jesus alone to Jesus plus man's wisdom, worldly wisdom, religious methodology, Jesus plus anything. But many in the church at Sardis, most of them had Jesus plus something. They had compromised. And these are the things that Jesus exposes as going on in the life of the church at Sardis. They're active, they're participating, they're preaching, they're praying, they're worshiping, but they are completely dead. And the symptoms of that death is the spiritual laziness that's going on in there, the spiritual forgetfulness of what's being taught, what's being preached, the glory of Christ, and the compromise when it comes to the sufficiency of Jesus. And I think the question has to be, how how does that happen? How does that happen that we might turn away from Christ and, and, and become one of these who's indifferent towards Him? It's when we take our eyes off Christ and even for a moment, for a smidgen, He's not everything to us. It's in that moment our minds and our hearts are opened up to other things, other wisdoms, maybe a supplement to Jesus, something additional. And what was needed in the church at Sardis with this devastating diagnosis Look like you're alive. Everyone thinks you're alive. You have the reputation for being alive, but you're dead. What's needed is emergency surgery. 
what's needed right now, emergency surgery. Immediate action has to be taken before they die an eternal death. And Jesus gives them a series of imperatives. Our focus here at Covenant of Life Church tends to be on the indicatives, the truth of who Christ is and what he's done. And we're going to go through these imperatives, but we want to see them in light of who Christ is and what he's done. Five imperatives that that are, are calls to action, all of which revolve around Jesus. And the first we see in verse 2, Christ tells the church at Sardis, and perhaps even to to us this morning, verse 2, first command, wake up. Rouse yourself. He's saying, wake up. You don't even realize you're you're, you're gathering for worship. You're active. You're preaching. You're praying. You're teaching. You're worshiping. you got all kinds of activities going on, this, that, and the other, and you don't even realize. You have drifted away from your king. You're here to worship the king, but in here, you've drifted. You've turned away from him. And as you drift away, the enemy of your souls approaches, looking for areas in your life to get a foothold, an area to tempt you, to pull you further away from Christ. Here we see it is possible to be religious, to be good, to be active, and yet to drift away from Christ. And then the enemies of Christ, the flesh, Satan, the world around us, sees opportunity. There's an opportunity for, to make this person compromise. There's an opportunity to make this person turn from their king in idolatry. And Jesus says, wake up. You're here bodily, but your soul has drifted away from Christ. And notice he says, this is a matter of eternal life and death. Rouse yourself. Now, in days gone by, you know, sermons like this, it's rouse yourself. Come on, church, wake up. Wake up. Today's the day. Wake up. Rouse yourself. Go back to Jesus. I'm going to tell you right now. I've heard that message a thousand times. Can't do it. Sounds all well and good. I don't, I cannot rouse myself to respond that way. You see, this kind of spiritual surgery we're talking about, this emergency needs an expert surgeon. And that ain't me. That ain't me, pulling up my bootstraps. You know what? He's right. This is me. There is, are these symptoms in me. I'm going to wake up today. It won't sustain. This spiritual surgery needs a skilled surgeon, which means that I need to cry out to the God of heaven and say, Oh, my God, have mercy on me. You command me to rouse myself, to wake myself up, but I can't do that. I ask you, grant me grace. Grant me mercy. Awaken me. Help me to see what Christ sees. That I can externally be religious and active, but my heart has departed, has fled Christ. Help me to see. Secondly, the command not only to wake up, but also there in verse 2, we see, wake up and strengthen or restore what remains and is about to die. That's interesting to say there. Strengthen or restore what remains and is about to die. It means that the church at Sardis, even though Jesus has this stunning word, this devastating word for them, though you seem alive, you're dead, he also, there, it wasn't all bad. 
It's not that the church had nothing going for it. There was a remnant of love for Christ, devotion to Christ, worship of King Jesus, the spread of His fame. But those core fundamental disciplines needed to be restored. The church needed to get back to, with all their activity, this, that, and the What the church needs is this. What the church needs is this. What it needs this. No, 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 it's lacking this. No, what the church needs to get back to is Jesus Christ. Back to his sufficiency. Back to his glory, his excellence. Being enchanted by him. Being hypnotized by him. Being majestically drawn to him. The most fundamental reality of the Christian life. Christ is all. Not some new methodology, not some new program, not something that's going to address the bad fruit in the church, something that's going to get to the root of the issue, right? We're in this time of season now where we're going about, I, I am not a person who's good at my flower bed. You know, these weeds come up and I just chop them off and I get so frustrated because a day or two later, here they come right back. Got to get down to the root. For me, that's just too much work. <laughs> Spiritually. You've got to get back to the root, the fundamental problem. We've departed from our king. So we've got to return to those basic core disciplines of getting serious, of looking unto Jesus. That's like Thomas Vincent said, without love to Christ, this is exactly what was going on in the church at Sardis, without love to Christ, we may carry the name of Christian, but we are holy without the nature. It, is, it could not be more polar opposite to claim to be a Christian and yet not have love for Jesus Christ. So how do we go about cultivating a greater love and devotion and affection for Christ? Well, it's by knowing Him. By knowing Him as He's revealed Himself in His Word. And you can go start in Genesis, go all the way to Revelation. It's all about Him. You, you, when you read David and Goliath, you're reading about Jesus. When you read about Jonah, you're reading about Jesus. All of it is, is looking to Jesus, showing us who He is. You see Him in the Gospels. You see Him brought to bear upon the life of the church in the New Testament epistles. We're seeing Him in the book of Revelation. We must know Him, walk with Him daily, cling to Him, look to Him. And how do we do that? There's no better way than just the time in the Word, individually and corporately. Time in the Word, prayer together, faithfulness to the Christ-centered gathering of God's people, what we do here every Lord's Day. We're not perfect. We don't do it perfect. You've seen this morning, we had some, some, some problems on the screen. <laughs> I just have to own that. But doggone it, we're going to try. Strengthen what remains. Thirdly, the third command that he gives. This is emergency surgery that needs to be done. Verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. What does that mean? I think the most obvious application of that to our day is this. If this is a word of God to you this morning, that externally, you know, you're alive, you're vibrant, but internally you're dead, this is a message you're going to want to hang on to. I don't mean... This message, I mean the message of Christ to the church, it's artists. This is something you're, you're not going to want to forget. Remember what you've received and heard. I do not think it would be an extreme to say that there are probably some Sundays you leave here saying, well, thank goodness that's over. 
I got through another one of Jake's messages. Uh, I got till next Sunday to get ready for another one. I hope that's not the case, but it wouldn't shock me if someone has that kind of cynical response. But that's not what verse 3 is. That's not the emergency. The emergency surgery would say, oh, God, you're speaking to me. Your letter to the church at Sardis is your word to me. And I'm shaking right now as I sit here. And when I leave here, the birds are going to come. Jesus' parable, right? And take the seed of the word of God that was sown and take it away. But oh God, there's too much at stake. Help me to remember this. Help me to, to cling to Christ. Help me to work this so in my heart that it might transform me. We tend to forget things that are so crucial to us sometimes. That's why the gathering together with the Lord's people every Sunday morning, we gather together. Again, we're not a perfect church, but we sit together at the table of God's word to look unto Jesus. We pray the, we pray the Psalms. We sing Christ-centered songs. And we, te- we preach from Christ-centered texts in the Bible. These are ways to help remember what we've received and heard by consistently every Sunday, every Lord's Day being here on top of what you're doing in your private devotions. Fourth, emergency surgery. Action has to be taken. Also in verse 3, so remember what you've received and heard it and keep it. Keep it. To keep means to guard, to treasure something, to count it as valuable, to take great care of it. Well, what has the Christian received that is so valuable? And the answer is Christ. Christ is that pearl of great price that 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 individual, he he found the pearl and went and sold everything that he has that he might buy this field. Not because he wanted the field, I just got to have this. And that is Christ. That pearl is, is Christ. The great joy, the great good news of the gospel is Christ. Through Christ we get God, we get Christ with us. His nearness, His excellency, His person. And Christ implores us and all throughout Scripture to treasure Him supremely because He is inexhaustible. He is all-sufficient for every circumstance. He is majestic in beauty. Nothing compares to Him. What is it that we must keep? It is keep near to Christ. And this is the heart of Sardis' failure. They got so busy doing three, four, five different things, ten things, a dozen things, whatever. They got so busy. They didn't keep Christ as the most valuable thing in the world to them as a church, to them individually. A church that doesn't value Jesus Christ supremely, not as a theme, not as a motto, but as our only hope. A church that doesn't demonstrate love for Christ is a dead church. I don't care how many people are there, how many activities you've got, how perfect the worship is. That must serve as a vital warning to us in the days to come. Love for Christ is life. And then the fifth command that Jesus offered, repent. 
This is emergency surgery that the church at Sardis and we, where applicable, need to do. Repent. And what is repentance? It may include sorrow and grief and despair and conviction. Oh, but it's so much more than that. None of those things by themselves are sufficient to be called repentance. Repentance is a turning away. It's person-oriented. If this great sin of Sardis is you have fled from your king, oh, you're being religious, but in here, the heart, you're dead because you've departed from your king. Repentance is return to your king. Return to Christ. No matter how religiously active you might consider yourself to be, repent. If one of the symptoms of of spiritual death here is, is spiritual lethargy, being lethargic, then turn from that sluggishness that neglects seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. For the all-glorious, all-sufficient, all-enchanting, wonderful Savior and King and treasure that He is, repent and return to Him. Turn from the spiritual amnesia where, where looking unto Jesus is just a Sunday morning thing, but it's a motto, it's a theme. We leave here and we don't apply. Repent. Be vigilant this day. Don't be forgetful. Today of all days, as you walk down through these glass doors and down those steps and into your vehicles, be more vigilant than ever with God's help. Lord, help me not to forget the pure excellency, the sufficiency of Christ, because I don't know what this day is going to have for me. I don't know what this week is going to have for me. But I know Christ will be my hope. Christ will be my life. Christ will be everything to me. Be as vigilant as you've ever been. That's repentance. Return to this king. Don't leave him at the door. Turn from spiritual compromise, any areas of heart attitude. And we've looked at this for the last several weeks, so we're not going to belabor the point. But if there's still any lingering area where you're treasuring the world or the things of the world, even good things, your spouse, your children, anything you're treasuring above Him and, and you've, you've only found a little place for Christ, well then repent. Return to your King. He himself said your love for him should make your love for your parents and your children and your family look like hatred. Not literally, but that's how supreme that love for him should be. How pure, to use the psalmist's words in Psalm 111, to worship him with our whole heart. Our hearts are not compartmentalized between 60% love for Jesus, 30% love for for spouse, 10% love for... 100%. Devoted to Jesus. And out of that love for Jesus will flow my love for my spouse, my children, those around me. And this kind of repentance is not a one-time event. It's an ongoing part of the Christian life. Beloved, are we seeing the church at Sardis? From a distance, they looked good and healthy. That was their perception of themselves. That was other people's perception of them. But it was not. Might that be true of us? And I love this fact that the letter here to Sardis ends. It began with Christ's devastating news to the church. You think you're alive. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And if you don't repent, I will come like a thief in the night. It would be devastating to you. But he ends by giving words of encouragement. 
Remember he mentioned there are a few faithful few still in the church. And this is kind of my personality, and I know I'm not alone in this. A lot of times when maybe it's your parents or a coach or a teacher, when they come in with a stern word for the group, I remember being on the baseball team, playing ball and, and coach coming in, and maybe we were on a losing streak or whatever, and he comes in with a stern word, and he's just throwing out these blanket statements. You guys aren't playing hard enough. You're not trying hard enough. I don't see you working hard enough. I don't see you coming in early, staying late. I tended to be one who came early and stayed late. I knew he wasn't talking to me. But his voice, I was convicted by it. And I was like, maybe I'm still not doing enough. You know, I was, I was burdened by it. And what I'm getting at with that is sometimes those to whom Christ is speaking are the ones who just won't listen. And sometimes it's those who are most sensitive who hear it and are shaken to the core, quivering. And it's to those, Jesus says, verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. What a word of hope. What a word. To those who are, and not a one of us in this room need to be quick to assume I'm the faithful one. We need to test our heart for these symptoms and for the need for this emergency surgery. But here's the hope, the promise, eternal life with Jesus Christ forever. And that's what we want. I could not imagine the agony of hearing a doctor say to me, Jake, we've looked at the x-rays. It's cancer, buddy. And Jake, it's terminal. Jake, there's nothing we can do for you. What I would hear is, I'm a dead man. Sobering words. I would play the what-if game. If only I'd gotten examined sooner. Maybe, maybe we would have caught it earlier. Maybe all this could have been avoided. Now, of course, we know the sovereignty of God. That's, his timing is perfect. But in the grace of God, maybe, maybe there would have been an opportunity to at least go through chemo, to at least find some radical emergency surgery. Maybe something could have done. Maybe it wouldn't have worked, but at least to try. Jesus is saying to his church this morning, church at Sardis, Covenant Life Church, you as individuals of Covenant Life Church, I know you think you're healthy. I know you think you're vibrant, alive, you're strong. I got a shocking diagnosis for you, and it's painful, it's devastating. You think you're alive. You have the reputation for being alive. But I look at the symptoms. You're spiritually lethargic. You're spiritually forgetful of, of the glory, the greatness, and the application of Christ to your life. You're spiritually compromised with the world. You've, you've turned away from Christ alone to Christ plus other things. You think you're alive. 
but you're dead. And immediate action is necessary. Emergency surgery. It's going to be a painful process. It's going to be a difficult process. It will require you to cry out to God for grace to do it. But if you'll do it at the end of the day, I promise you, you will be restored. And I guess I would ask you, I know most in this room have had surgery of some type, a hip replacement surgery, a knee replacement surgery, gallbladder surgery recently. Do you regret, now, if you do regret it, this messes me up, so... Do you regret having the knee replacement surgery, Brother Larry? Do you regret it? You seem to be getting around a lot better now than you did previously. And Mom, I saw you in pain in the emergency room with your gallbladder. Do you regret having that gallbladder removed a couple weeks ago? You look healthier. You seem happier. I like not seeing my mom cringing in pain. Was it worth it? Was the surgery difficult? To some degree? Was the recovery process just scot-free, no problems? I woke up out of surgery and everything was perfect? No, there was probably recovery, physical therapy. This might be a painful process, this emergency surgery that needs to be done. But Jesus here is saying, but it's worth it. And I think the good thing about realizing the pain and the receiving this devastating news is that though it might humble us, and that is a wonderful thing, it might humble us and force us to look at our heart and what we live for. It may leave us in a pile of rubble just crying out, confessing our need. The wonderful thing of all this is that this Christ who is diagnosing some of us this morning in this text, probably most of us, is the one who holds the seven spirits in his hands. Go back to Revelation 1.4. What is the seven spirits? It is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He has in his hand everything that is necessary to help make our name that we claim, Christians, and our reality match. He has the power to do that. He has the grace to do that. And my prayer is that he would do that in each and every one of us this morning. And so Christ closes his letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's bow our heads this morning. And we'll give you time for prayer, response to the Word of God, but I would simply ask you, as you think about your own heart this morning, alive or dead? The question each of us must ask ourselves, am I a fake that's here looking good, looking religious, but inwardly, I don't have that passionate, fervent love for Jesus? The day will come when that will be eternally revealed. Christ here is merciful to say, now. Emergency surgery, now. Heed Christ's warning. Wake up and cry out to him, oh God of mercy. I can't rouse myself. 
I need you. Waken me and turn me to Christ.